0: We will let's turn to Revelation chapter three verses fourteen through twenty-two. Revelation three verses fourteen through twenty-two. Now, uh, it doesn't say on this particular slide, but it is going to be part one of a of a couple of uh, folk uh, a couple of weeks, a couple of Wednesdays that we're going to focus our attention on the Church of Laodicea. As I mentioned earlier tonight, uh, it's the seventh of the seven churches that uh, we've seen letters written to here in Revelation chapter chapters 2 and 3, and it's written to the worst of the churches. So, uh, you know, we always say we save the good to, to, the, to the end. Uh, in this particular case, uh, for some reason, Jesus <laughs> has saved the worst for the end. But there's a reason for that, and we'll get into it in these next couple of weeks. So if you will turn to verse 14 there, and let's uh, begin looking at this particular passage tonight. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things says the Amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of the creation of God and Jesus says to this church I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot I could wish you were cold or hot so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, it goes without saying that those are powerful words. And then he goes on to say to them because you are because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. Uh, many of you remember just a few minutes ago you were singing a song with those same words. Jesus counsels them now and he says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, also part of the song, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, therefore be zealous and repent. And then we come to that great verse. And remember the context, he is still speaking to this church. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. After a service, a young woman went to her pastor and said to him, Preacher, I have a besetting sin and I want your help. I I came to church or I come to church on Sunday and I can't help thinking that I'm the prettiest girl in the congregation. I know I ought not to think that. But I can't help it. I want you to help me with this problem. (laughs) So the preacher replied, Mary, don't worry about it. In your case, it's not a sin. It's just a horrible mistake. (laughs) Sometimes things are not how they seem or how we think they are. Isn't that right? Perhaps we look at our lives through rose-colored glasses, and we fail to see the faults that we may have. Perhaps we've deceived ourselves into thinking we're some sort of super saints, but in reality we're barely hanging on spiritually. It is important for us to regularly and honestly look at ourselves and see where we truly stand, Perhaps we need to ask ourselves these questions. What type of church is this? Now remember, we've looked at seven churches, or at six churches so far. We're looking at the seventh this evening. But the most important question after that is this. What type of Christian am I? Because in every church that we've seen so far, in every church we've seen so far, there are true believers, and then there are those who are either deceivers or, de- or, or, or those who have been deceived. There are those that the Lord has had to exhort or admonish to get right and to repent and to turn from certain ways of, of doing things. So, yes, we have to look at the church as a whole, but we have to look at ourselves too. What type of Christian am I? Not what type of Christian Christian am I when I'm at church only, because when we leave here, we become a different person. What kind of a Christian am I in public and in private? And you know, sometimes the hardest question to answer is how am I in private with the Lord? Do I really have a private relationship with Jesus Christ as much as I have a public one? In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, seven different churches were addressed. In those addresses, some of the churches are harshly criticized for their shortcomings. A couple of the churches are not criticized at all. Do you remember which ones? Smyrna and Philadelphia. Not criticized at all. The church of Smyrna was a a church that was going through so much suffering, but they were alive. They were small, but they were blessed. And the church of Philadelphia was a church that exuded its name, a church of brotherly love and brotherly kindness. Where would we stand collectively and personally when we look at all seven churches? I mean, I would really hope that we are very much like the Church of Philadelphia. And I know that at times, as a church, we face trials in the world, and we will face more as we look for the coming of Jesus. And so sometimes those trials bring about some kind of persecution, some kind of attacks on our faith. But do we stand strong in the midst of those attacks? You see, the study of the seven letters has has been important for us because they reveal what Christ thinks about the church. What Christ thinks about the church as a whole. What he thinks about it today. And what he thought about it in the day that the letters were written. And what he thinks about different types of Christians in any age. In fact, these two chapters could well be titled, What Christ Thinks about the church so as we study this last letter to the church located in Laodicea let me remind you of the significance of these letters first of all each one of the churches was an actual church existing in an actual city in Asia Minor around 95 AD for this was about the time that John was given this revelation of Jesus Christ and Jesus is now giving him a command to write these letters down for every church that he gives him of those seven churches in Asia Minor. Secondly, the seven churches represent different types of churches. For example, one church was dead, right? We, we, we spoke of that a couple of weeks ago, the church of Sardis. It, it looked like it was alive, but it was dead. It seemed like it was alive, but it was dead. Some churches suffer, like we mentioned, the church of Smyrna. Some believers suffer for Christ. They still do today. And thirdly, they typify different types of churches throughout history. And we've seen some connections through that from, from the beginning of, of, of the early church all the way to the, 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 to the present day. And in between, when there were dark ages and middle ages, uh, uh, there was a tremendous uh, battle to see where the true church lay because there were so many counterfeits. So, the church of Philadelphia, or let me say this, of the seven churches, I should say, the church of Laodicea was the worst of all all seven. Jesus doesn't have one good thing to say about it as we go through this text this week and next week there isn't one good thing that he says about it even the dead church has a little life but these guys didn't have anything good for Jesus to say about them Jesus doesn't have one good thing to say and if there were any true believers there Jesus didn't even say anything about them I mean you would even hope you know if there is a true believer in this church in, in Laodicea that Jesus would say at least there's one of you But he doesn't even mention that. Now, as I was going to say, the church of Philadelphia, the true and the faithful church, was promised that it would be kept from the hour of temptation. And when we were talking about this last week, you know, about the prophetic implications here of Philadelphia, we have to remember that another word for temptation is the word trial. And that meant that the true church... Would not go through that tribulation period when we get to it in in, in the time of uh, uh, that is yet to come, and we're going to talk about that more as we get into the Book of Revelation. But however, no no such promise is made to the Church of Laodicea. There is no promise for this church. See that's what's really sad here. There's no promise. Which brings to mind the question, does that mean that this will be the church, the significant church that will go through the tribulation period? Because there will be those who will go through the tribulation period thinking they're in in church. But there's no true connection with the true God and with the true Savior Jesus Christ. So it is something to think about. And as we shall find out, the people thought they were a church, but they really weren't. Now I know that's a strong statement to make, but as we go through this particular study of, of, of these last verses of chapter 3, we're going to we're gonna have to come to that conclusion. They thought they were a church, but they weren't. Could that really be happening? How many churches today exist you know, they, they, they pay their, their due, you know, and they do everything right as far as being a church legally and whatnot. And they got ministers and they have pastors and they have preachers and they have priests or whatever it is. And, 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 and they, have, they go through all of these things, but they don't really focus their attention upon the things that Christ has said. The things that His Word word says, they they, they spend more time spending uh, hours and trying to just do community service rather than teach the people the Word of God. I mean, that goes on today. Not to mention that there are certain non-Christian cults that also set up like churches. They even call themselves churches. There is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Sounds good. It says church in the name of it. But those, of course, are the Mormons, and they don't believe in the same Jesus that we believe in. Totally different when you examine the Mormon doctrines and the Mormon theology, Mormon teaching. Same with Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. They uh, go door to door, they look nice, nice people, but they believe a lie. They don't believe the word of God. As it, as it, they have to change things in the Word of God. You know, so that they they you know can fit their theology. So understand, you see. You can be a church, but you're not really a church. And you're not really a part of the true church because there's only one true church, that is the one gathering and assembly of all who believe in Jesus Christ, which means you don't just believe in that He exists, but you believe in Him, you believe that He's alive, and you believe His every word, and you believe what He has given us in His word to live by until He comes again. That's quite different than a lot of churches are doing today. So could this phrase by the Apostle Paul really be de- defining those groups And it's this, having a form of godliness, he says, but denying its power. By the way, I would like for you to read the first four verses before this. We don't have time to do it tonight, but but I want you to read those first four verses. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. I just pulled this one out because that that really says it. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Denying the power of Jesus Christ. Denying the power of the deity of Jesus Christ. Denying the power of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Denying the power of the Word of God. That is having a form of godliness, but not living by the power of God. You all do understand that, right? We're making that clear. Okay, so let's take a slightly different approach tonight in learning about the Church of Laodicea. I don't have my maps for you all tonight. You're all are probably saying, yay, no maps. <laughs> I'm gonna have them next week. Oh, just kidding. No, I will have them next week. I didn't need them tonight. So let's just take a slightly different approach in learning about the Church of Laodicea. I'll get back to the type of the city of the church, uh, the, the, the type of city the church was in shortly. But let's look at the name, the city name of Laodicea. Because it is a compound word. And it means the rights of the people. Look at that name. It means the rights of the people. You could almost say that they are really into democracy. Because in democracy, if if you have a pure democracy as it were, it's, you know, the rights of the people, right? We're not going to go into political science tonight, but, but nonetheless, it's a compound word. It comes from uh, Laos, which is the, word, uh, the root word for people, and also the word dike, which is rights or justice for the people. So the rights of the people. That's what Laodicea means. I find that to be quite significant. I mean, it just really hits you smack in the face when you think about this particular church, the church in Laodicea. Because could any other term more aptly set forth the condition of the church then and the, uh, the condition of present-day churches and their affairs as we've been talking about here the last few minutes? I mean, there are churches today, as I've said, or, or perhaps just call themselves churches that push more for the rights of the people than they proclaim the truths of the Word of God. They want to be the ones who vote everybody in and vote everybody out Are there churches today. They'll vote pastors in, they'll vote pastors out. We don't do that here. We try to do our government based upon the Word of God. But it doesn't happen that way. But there are those who, you know, they find this... I want to get into church government because I don't like that pastor. I want to vote him out. Nobody ever said anything about praying for him. Nobody, nobody ever said about going and sitting down with him and saying, You know, uh, pastor, uh, can we pray together? I really got to get... You know, no. Do we realize... How significant this is. The rights of the people is more important than the doctrines of the Word of God. So that's giving us a little clue now what we're dealing with with, it, with Laodicea. So, in many cases what the people want rights for today, think about this, what the people want rights for are in direct contradiction to the Word of God. And some churches are abiding by some of those things that people want. What is one of the great uh, struggles today in, in our society? Same-sex marriage. It's condemned in the word of God. By the way. Well, what are churches doing today? Oh, well, we will accommodate, but it's against the word of God. So God's word doesn't change, does it? God doesn't change. God's word doesn't change. And by the way, the things that we're talking about is an abomination to the Lord. God would want those people's hearts to be changed so that they can do what's right, so that they can go to heaven. They're choosing not to. So they make a whole new plan. Are are you following me now as to what the problem is here? So in effect, they want rights away from the law of God. They want rights away from the statutes and the precepts of God's holy word simply to justify their sin and their sinful lifestyle. And I was reading something, by the way, not too long ago that was was saying that laws are being implemented in our country, in the United States of America. Laws are being implemented today to say that what I've just said to you in the last three minutes is against the law. Sorry, I got to say it. Because God's law is higher than that law. And the government wants to tell us what we can and can't preach. If we happen to just preach against something that they're, you know, supporting, and we they call it hate speech. I'm telling you right now, I call it love speech. I'm trying to get you to understand how much God loves you, that He doesn't want you to go in that direction because you're going to spend your eternity apart from Him and in complete and utter punishment and condemnation. Not because God hates you. Not because God hates a person like that. Isn't that painful to think? God created... Us so that we would be with him, but we're the ones who turn our backs on him. Let's go back to 2 Timothy for just a moment. And let's look at uh, 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 4. I know it's all crunched up in there, but you've got your Bible, so just read those. This is what Paul says to Timothy. And I want to tell you that Paul is saying this to Timothy near the end of his ministry, near the end of his life toward the end uh, you know when he's going to be going to glory you know he's going to be uh, he's going to be martyred for his faith and all but this is what he tells this is what he tells Timothy he says preach the word be ready in season and out of season be instant and in, and ready the king james says be instant so be ready at any instance you need to serve the lord Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Do you think that we are living in a time when people are not enduring sound doctrine today? We are expressly living in times when people do not endure sound doctrine today. But according to their own desires. Notice this. According to their own desires, because they have itching ears... Oh, I don't like what I'm hearing over here, so I'm going to go over here where I like what I hear. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers who are going to teach them a lie, by the way, and deception, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. How many of you have ever seen this expression, vox populi, vox dei? Anybody? Some of you have, good. Well, this is what it means. The voice of the people is the voice of God. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Now, it's interesting that this statement was written in a letter by a theologian named Alcuin, or Alcuinus, uh, who was appointed by uh, Charlemagne in 798. But this is what it said, and, and, and really it's, it's interesting, the quote. Alcuin wrote this to Charlemagne. He said, and those people should not be listened to who keep saying the voice of the people is the voice of God since the riotousness of the crowd is always very close to madness. And I thought, hey, go figure. That's what we're living in today. We're living in a mad world, aren't we? I mean, there is madness all around us. The way people are living today, the way they're forcing their lifestyles in our faces, it's madness. We're living in the age of madness and right as living an anarchy today, by the way. The spirit of the age is the spirit of a large part of the church, Unfortunately. Hence the striking correspondence between this letter to the Laodiceans and the spirit that is so prevalent about us. So let's look at the letter here for just a moment. And let's consider the destination, of course, being Laodicea. It says in Revelation 3.14, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Now I want you to notice something. Let me make this quick comment on the phrase, the church of the Laodiceans. Now, this is, this is some homework you gotta do here, but it's, it's like, uh, you don't have to take it home. We're doing it here today so that you don't have any homework tonight. You know, teachers, you've done that, right? I don't want you to go home with the work. Do it now. Okay, here's your work. Are you ready? Go back to chapters two and three and look at the beginning of each letter to each church. And what does it say? What does it say? I'm sorry. What does it say? No, what does it say? To the church of Ephesus. To the church of Smyrna, to the church of Pergamos, to the church of Thyatira, to the church of Sardis, to the church of Philadelphia. Have you noticed that? Are you looking at? Are you looking at your Bibles? Yeah, you seen that? Now we come to Laodicea. Now, some of you may have some modern translations out there, but in the King James Version, the New King James, it says, to the church of the Laodiceans. That is significant here, folks. The majority text upon which the King James and the New King James Versions are written upon, what is called the Textus Receptus, or the received text, has held on to this thought, because this was the way the text was written, that this is the only church that it says it belongs to the Laodiceans. Do you see the, the, the difference here? I mean, this is a significant statement here purely because of the text that we study here. This is the reason why I, I've chosen to study the King James and the New King James out of those texts. Because all the others will just kind of, and they'll say it on the margins in some cases. Well, the, the, the older translations say, uh, you know, just to the, uh, the the church of Laodicea. But that's not really what it says. This is what it says. So the King James and New King James are the only translations that recognize this title, which alone is found in the mass, I should say, the majority text or the received text, and all of the other letters are written to the angels of the churches in the corresponding cities. So this is the only letter written to a church that belongs to the people. What does the name Laodicea mean? The rights of the people. I find that quite revealing. Okay, let's move on. The city of Laodicea was located some 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia and 100 miles due east of Ephesus. Now, if I had my maps here, you'd know where I was going, right? So Laodicea was part of a triad of cities. Now, this is very significant as well, biblically. It was a part of a triad of cities. Three cities that were close to each other, along with Colossae and Hierapolis. Colossae, of course, is is a city where there was a church that Paul wrote a letter to. The church of the Colossians so the letter of the Colossians uh, was written to the church that was there in Colossae so um, okay so Hierapolis also is mentioned in the scriptures and, uh, and so on and so forth so they're in the, in the same area with uh, with Laodicea because they were located in the Lycus Valley. Now, it was founded, and I, say, I should say La- Laodicea was founded by the Seleucid ruler Antiochus II, and, it, and named after his first wife sometime before 253 BC. So his first wife was named uh, something similar to Laodicea. So the city was named Laodicea. And this was one of the rich, one of the richest commercial centers in the world. Now... This city was so wealthy. Now keep these things in mind because they go to every point that Jesus makes when he writes this letter to them. But the city was so wealthy and independent that after a devastating earthquake in 61 AD that leveled the city, they rejected help from Rome to rebuild the city and they did it on their own. Now, you know that I've told you about some other cities that were, were, were devastated by an earthquake there. Sardis, I believe, was one and, 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 and all. But they, you know, the, the, the Roman government came and they built, rebuilt the city for them. This city said, no, we can do it ourselves. Are you getting an idea of the, of the letter now that Jesus is writing to the church? The church is somewhat being just like the city. So we'll get, that, we'll get to that in just a moment. So the city relied on their own wealth and their own resources to build or rebuild the city. And because they were so self-sufficient, they needed help from no one. And I would have to say, not even God. They didn't even need help from God. They, of course, they had their own gods there too. As a matter of fact, they, they worshipped the same gods as all the other cities did. As far as the city was concerned, they had their temples and all. And we don't need to go into that because we've already studied all, the, all of those gods before. But Laodicea was known for some other things. Laodicea was, had a university that was known worldwide for its treatment of eye and ear diseases, especially eye diseases. Do, do you remember now what we read in verses 14 through 22 that was mentioned that you, uh, you're poor, blind, and naked? He's, you're poor and blind. And Jesus specifically mentions that because they boasted that they had what people who were blind needed to have their sight back. So there was an eye salve that was developed there in Laodicea from the uh, vegetation and, uh, and all that they had. They developed this and, and, and people's eyes got better. But the contrast, if you want, the irony uh, is that the church... Thinking, just like the city, it was rich and had need of nothing. Jesus says, but you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. Uh, Speaking on the issue of being uh, naked, they also raised black sheep and they sold their wool for a good profit. They made a lot of great woolen clothes there in Laodicea. So they boasted in in their clothing industry. And so their riches and their programs and their self-reliance would eventually be their downfall. Just like the church. It caused those in the church to become lukewarm, just like those in the city. But the church became lukewarm to the things of God. city could care less about God. But in the church that was supposed to be the church of Jesus Christ in that city, they became lukewarm to the things of God. Which I'm afraid is easy for many of us today to do if we don't stay focused in our love and our service to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't continue to stay in, in, in fellowship and in relationship and in in, in 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 just the study of the word of God, staying in prayer, staying in all of the all of the disciplines of the of the word of God that, that we are to, to stand upon that keeps our our love relationship with Jesus Christ going, we could become lukewarm. We can get cold. But we can, we can go from being hot to lukewarm really quick. And these are the things we need to guard against. Consider that one of Laodicea's problems as a city was a poor water supply that made the city vulnerable to attack through siege. So if an enemy, or, uh, if an enemy army surrounded the city, they had insufficient water supplies in the city and the supplies coming into the city could be easily cut off. Therefore, the leaders of Laodicea... Look at this. The leaders of Laodicea were always accommodating to any potential enemy. This is the problem that Laodicea, the church, had was that it allowed the enemy's deceptions to make them become lukewarm and they would accommodate the enemy. Do you know when the enemy's attacking you, folks? Do you understand the question? Do you know when the enemy is attacking you? I've taught, I I can't believe there's only one person that knows what I'm talking about here. Do y'all know when the the enemy attacks? Yeah? Alright, it's alright. This is interactive here today. You can let me know that you're here. I know when the enemy is attacking. We all should know. First, and it starts suddenly, doesn't it? A lot of times it starts suddenly and there's deceptive practices there that the enemy uses. All to get our focus off of the Lord. All to get our focus off of the Word of God. All to get our focus off of the things that we know we're supposed to do for the Lord. And once we start heading in that direction, we're, we're, we're no longer on fire for the Lord. We're, we're now we, our, our whole attention has been taken away from that. And that's how the enemy works to get in. Get into our minds, into our hearts. Well, he can't get get into our heart, but he can get into our minds. He can mess us up pretty good up here. And get us to go off the beaten path. So, it's the same thing going on here. The the city is is a reflection of the church, and the church is a reflection of the city. So they were always negotiating with the enemy and compromised instead of fighting. Add to this the fact that their main water supply came from a six-mile aqueduct from the hot springs of Hierapolis. Now, Hierapolis was known for their hot springs and Colossae was known for their cold water. Colossi had great, cold, cool, soothing, wonderful water. Hierapolis had that nice hot stuff that you can kind of sit in and, uh, you feel real nice and good. But by the time that water, which was now aqueduct down into Laodicea, by the time it got to Laodicea, was nice and lukewarm. Are you getting the picture now how Jesus is using all of the traits of the city to show what happened to the church? And because the water came from those hot springs, eventually by the time it got to Laodicea, man, it was unappetizingly lukewarm. So now, according to what Paul wrote in Colossians, the church of Laodicea was more than likely planted by, or at least ministered by, Epaphras. And you can see that in Colossians 1, verse 7. We won't have to look at that. But it is possible that Archippus, who was Philemon's son, and Philemon was connected, actually, you know, the letter of Philemon came also by, with, with that group of letters that went to Colossae. But Philemon had a son... His name was Archippus, and he was possibly the pastor in Laodicea. Uh, turn to Colossians, just, 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 you know, get get some of this history down. But there, Epaphras is mentioned here in verses 12 and 13 of Colossians 4. He says, it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he who has a great zeal for you, and those who are in Laodicea, and those in Hierapolis. So there is that uh, that connection, those who are in Laodicea. So what, what we're hearing from Paul, this is a few years before John writes this letter uh, dictated by Jesus. But what it's telling us is that Laodicea actually had a good start. Laodicea actually had a good start. Now, here's a sad statement. It's a sad commentary. I don't even have to go through a lot of statistics, but, but here's the thing. A lot of churches have good starts. The problem is, they don't finish well. Because when the heat gets up, what are we going to do? Are we going to just say, oh my goodness, let's, you know, we're, we're getting attacked from all sides? Or are we going to do something and stand on God's word and start trusting the Lord? Because folks, when it comes down to it, it isn't about numbers. It is about faithfulness. It's about whether we're going to be faithful, whether anybody's around with us or not, because we believe that God's Word is true. We can stand on God's Word no matter what. Y'all understand that, right? Uh, I want you i want you to understand that. But the problem is that I don't want to start good and end bad. I want to start good and I want to end better. That, that's why I keep telling you, the year 2013, the vision for this church is we're going to start, uh, you know, have a good start and we're going to end better stronger we're going to start strong we're going to end stronger but we need to but we need to take into consideration all these things that god is giving us in his word so that um, by the time that jesus writes this letter we're getting back to laodicea he had a good start but by the time jesus writes this letter some 30 years after paul wrote his letter to the colossian church the assembly in laodicea had deteriorated to nothing more than a great structure with no true life inside And this is what we're seeing now in the words of Jesus to this church. I know your works, but you're neither hot nor cold. Wow. But before we go on to that, let's consider Jesus and the things that he says about himself in his description. Look at the last part of verse 14. These things says, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And just like the description given to the church of Philadelphia, the description of Jesus is not taken from Revelation chapter 1. Jesus begins by saying that He is the Amen. What does it mean to be the Amen? He says, so be it. Let it be. He is the Amen. And it was used to punctuate a statement. In this case, the statement is that Jesus is the one who will have the final say in all things. What do we say at the end of prayers? Amen. That's the stamp. That's the say, Let it be. So be it. Boom. And Jesus says, I am the amen. I am the final say. I am the final authority here. Jesus is the personification and the affirmation of the truth of God. As it says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. It says, For all the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him amen to the glory of God through us. In Jesus Christ, all the promises of God can end with amen. Let it be. Whatever God's promise is, let it be. Because God's promises are better than our own promises. God's promises are better than the promises of the world. God's promises are better than any other promise that any other person can ever make. And the promises of Jesus Christ are as good as the promises of God the Father. Because Jesus is God the Son. He is the Amen. And Jesus also entitles Himself as the faithful and the true witness. In sharp contrast to the church in Laodicea, which was neither faithful nor true. It was not faithful and it was not true. And this is the point that Jesus is telling them. The fact that Christ is both a faithful and true witness gives some special or gives special solemnness to the words which follow. It's a very solemn word that Jesus gives to this church. So for him to say the faithful and true witness has something to say to you, it's time to listen. The Lord is about to tell this church the truth about their condition. But He also calls Himself something else. He calls Himself the beginning of the creation of God which has caused many cults to come to the conclusion that Jesus was a created being, and thus that He is not God, but that is just poor Bible or biblical interpretation, and it is poor biblical exegesis. Exegesis is a theological term that says that you take out of what the Scripture says to understand it. You you take every word of of the Scriptures, and then you get its fullest meaning, and so you're getting out of the Scripture what it's saying to you. Well, that is uh, when you say that about Jesus that he's not that, that he's not the creator, but he is a created being. That's called iso Jesus. That's so called putting something into the Word of God. That's not that's the problem here. Most cults put in what they want to say into the Word of God. That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible is 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 corrupt. It is truly corrupt. And and, and the Mormons see the Mormons may take the the king james version of the bible and say well this is our bible but we also have other books so they don't corrupt the the bible itself they just don't read it what they read is the book of mormon and that is completely corrupt because they've taken many portions from the bible put it in there and then put their own story in there which by the way when it talks about jesus coming to the americas there is no uh archaeological evidence that they've even been here the, the nations that they say are in the Book of Mormon. So, I mean, it's just a lie, folks. It's just a lie. So, here again. Jesus, when He calls Himself the beginning of creation, uses a very special word for beginning. It isn't a beginning as, as a, in sequence as if, you know, He had a beginning. No, it is the word arche, A-R-C-H-E. In the Greek, the word arche means origin. In other words, when he calls himself the beginning of creation, he is saying he is the source and the originator of the creation. That's what it means. That is a totally different thought than to say that Jesus had a beginning. Because all you have to do, as we'll read in just a moment, is John 1, verses 1 through 3. But Jesus is first in prominence more than first in sequence. He is first in prominence. He is the creator. How do we know this? John 1 verses 1 through 3. And by the way, in Colossians chapter 1, there's also statements of Jesus being the Creator. But in John 1 verses 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The word means Logos. And the Word was with God. And the Logos was with God. And the Word was God. The Logos was. The Logos was God. That is Jesus Christ. Because it goes on to say, All things, uh, uh, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So it's speaking of Jesus, because in verse 14 of John chapter 1, it tells us that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So who's that speaking of? Jesus. All right, I only got three people telling me that. Who's it speaking of? Jesus. All right, isn't that a beautiful name to say? Amen, Amen. that's right. Alright, so, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So, he's not talking about being a created being, he's talking about being the creator. And again, read Colossians chapter 1. But consider also that there is so much confusion today in churches that refuse to teach the word of God as truth, especially when it comes to the issues such as creation and evolution. There are churches today that want to get into that, that debate because I oh, well you know I know that the word of God says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth but God could have used billions and billions of years to do it you have just compromised the word of God and how many of you remember about two and a half years ago almost well almost three years ago huh we started in Genesis chapter one we study we took two years to study eleven chapters. Of the book of Genesis. Why? Because they are the most important chapters in all the Bible because it speaks of God's creative power. It speaks of Him creating everything in six days because that's what the Scriptures say. But we can see how that can be in, in, indeed true. And the fact of the matter is, yes, we do have to believe it by faith, but so do you have to believe that uh, the world may have been created by two little molecules flying in, in space 30 billion years ago. You have to believe that more by faith than you believe that the Lord created the heavens and the earth in six days. Right? Are you guys falling asleep on me? I'm sorry, you're going to have to stay overtime tonight. I mean, after school. How to keep you awake. So there's the issues of creation and evolution. The issues of deity, the deity of Jesus Christ. The people just, well, you know, I, I heard a preacher say, you know, well, Jesus isn't really God. Oh, he's you know, because you know what they say? Jesus never really said he was. Yes, he did. Time and time and time again. If you study the Word of God, you get to see that he said it. Oh, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? There are churches today with pulpits similar to this. But they have pe- people that stand behind them and say, Well, you know, I don't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I went to, you know, many, many years of Bible college and seminary or cemetery or whatever you want to call it. And I, you know, and they were telling us there that it probably didn't really rise again. But it's just a good story to encourage people. No, Jesus rose from the dead. Gosh, what's wrong with people? But see, that's where the church is today. That's where the church is today. Well, by the way, not to mention the nation of Israel. Oh my goodness. There are churches today that would rather side with Hamas and Hezbollah than side with Israel. Churches. Why? Because they don't believe the Word of God? Wow. That really pains me when I hear about that. So anyway, we've got to move on. We don't have that much time. I don't want to make this three weeks. I just want to make it two. So let's move on to the condemnation because that's all they get. They get a condemnation. You know, the other churches, most of them got a commendation before they got the condemnation, right? Jesus had something good to say. Even if it was just a little, He had something good to say to most of the churches. But to this church, there's nothing good to say. Look at verses 15 through 17. I know your works, He says. Now, every time Jesus says that to the other churches... There's always something good, but here there isn't. This is the only time there's nothing good. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. Wow. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You think Jesus is serious here? I do. You know, sweet Jesus, meek and mild, baby Jesus, you know, in a manger. That's the way people want to see Jesus today. But folks, you know what? He rose from the dead and he sat at the right hand of the throne of God. And the description that's given to us in Revelation chapter 1 is Jesus today. Do you remember I said that a few weeks ago? Go back and read chapter 1 and see the description of Jesus. Eyes with a flame of fire. Word of God proceeding from his mouth. This is Jesus right now. Who's going to come again soon. And he's coming seriously Because He's going to settle all accounts Not only in the world Not only with Israel But He's even going to settle accounts in the church So then because you are lukewarm And neither cold nor hot I will vomit you out of my mouth Because you say I am rich Have become wealthy And have need of nothing That sounds like the city of Laodicea But it's also the church He says and do not know You do not know You have no clue That you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. As I said, there are no words of commendation at all given to the church of Laodicea. But interestingly enough, neither is there any word of censure or false teaching or immorality. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't come down on them because of their immorality. There may not have been any immorality. Maybe they didn't uh, preach a strong message, but they didn't preach a bad one either. In other words, they're just kind of in between. Isn't that lukewarm? I mean, complacent, Hmm? apathetic. I mean, we've seen some apathetic churches and complacent churches already, but this is a combination all found here in Laodicea. The trouble at Laodicea is that they were neither hot nor cold. Now the Greek words are striking, and are left, uh, and we are left with no doubt concerning their meaning. Cold or hot? Which would you rather be? Well, first of all, let's find out what cold means. Cold comes from the Greek word "sukros," which means icy cold. I mean, really cold. We're talking about very, very cold, almost freezing. That's what the word "sukos" means. And then the, the word hot comes from the Greek word zestos. By the way, we get a, an English word. Zest, right? Yeah. The word zest comes from that. But it l- literally means boiling hot. Do you, do you, do you see the, 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 you know, the extremes here? Of those two words. We're not talking about anything in between. We're talking about something very cold and something very hot. And the Lord said, I'd rather you be icy icy cold or boiling hot. So there's no doubt to the meaning that Jesus was giving. Jesus would prefer us to boil or freeze rather than simmer down into an insensitive lukewarmness. Outright rejection of the faith. Stay with me here. Outright rejection of the faith is better than the insensitivity to the faith of the Laodiceans. In other words, to profess Christianity while remaining untouched by its fire is a disaster for the church and for the world. Their coolness, their aloofness, their self-centeredness was a denial of the meaningfulness of Christ and what He had done. So here's, here's, here's a way to sum it up. They said they believed But they live like it was unimportant. Now is that a prevalent uh, attitude today? Yes. To say you believe. Have you ever talked to somebody and do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh yeah. Oh you do? Yeah. Well do you serve Him? What you talking about? What do you mean serve Him? I, I, I have my own way of doing things. I have my own way of worshiping the Lord. Do you go to church? No, I don't go to church. Do you you pray? Well, yeah, we all pray, don't we? Are you getting a picture here? Is Jesus important to you? Just keep this in your heart. But is Jesus important to you? So much so that you cannot get up in the morning without really just thanking Him for life, for breath, for purpose. Finding that time to spend with Him, finding that time to read, to grow in His Word, and then to say, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do today, let me serve you. Fill my heart. Strengthen me. Lord, set a fire inside of me, because, Lord, I'm human, and I need, I need, that, I need that encouragement, but... But I just want to serve you. It doesn't have to be a whole lot of stuff. It just has to be something that burns inside of you for the love of Christ. Our inner spiritual fire is always in constant danger of dying down. It needs to be poked. It needs to be fed. It needs to be fanned into flame. You know, Paul said to Timothy in Second Timothy chapter 1, he said to him, listen, he says, you need to stir up the the." the your faith that's inside of you—you you need to stir it up. And use terms like stirring with a stick to stir up a fire that's going out. And, and, and when you hit the when you hit the, the 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 coals and you knock off some of that ash that's on them, you're allowing the the oxygen to come in and to restart that fire that's down inside, deep. And, and he says you know, you need to stir up the faith that's inside of you. In in other words, start burning again for Jesus. Uh, Timothy was, 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 a, was a pastor in Ephesus, but, you know, he, he was a young man and, he, and, and after a few years, I mean, he was really being attacked in so many ways. And, and, and so Paul is encouraging him. So there's a way to fan those flames. When we're beginning to get cold or we're beginning to, you know, kinda, of, kinda of simmer. You know, the idea of being on fire for Christ will strike some people as dangerous emotionalism, but that's not what we're dealing with here. Fanaticism is not what is intended here. Fanaticism is unreasoning and unintelligent. It is action without reflection. What Jesus desires and deserves is the reflection that leads to commitment. If Jesus is true, if He is the Son of God who became flesh, if He died for our sins and was raised from the dead, if the birth of Jesus Christ, if the day that He died and the day that He rose from the dead are more than meaningless events, then nothing less than our wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ will do. Do these things mean something to you, in other words? His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection. Do they mean something to you? If they mean something to you, then that's where the fire has to begin. This means putting Him first in our public and private life. It means seeking His glory and obeying His will. That's what it means. Better to be icy in rejection than to insult Him in the gospel with half-hearted indifference that communicates to the world that it holds little significance to you. Folks, it's better to be cold. Why? Because somebody will come and make you not cold. Somebody will bring you the gospel. And somebody will encourage you. If you're hot, you're already hot. Good. Stay there. But if you're cold, it's better be cold because at least somebody can come and say, listen, you need to get warmed up. But a person that's lukewarm is just saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm satisfied. I don't need anything. I don't want to be hot. I don't want to be cold. I just like it right here. But we don't like things lukewarm when we eat them and taste them and drink them or eat, you know, when we do all of that, that lukewarm is not all that good. Consider this, though, if you will. Luke 9, verse 23. Jesus said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a daily thing, folks. It's a daily thing for us to be connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a daily thing for us to allow that connection of of the Spirit of God with us to just light us every day. By the end of the day, man, I I, I mean, we we can kind of, we're out, right? We're human. Most of us here tonight, you've been working all day and you came here and I'm so thankful that you did. And I hope that you've gotten a little bit of rest. But, uh, you know, go home and go to sleep. Don't sleep here. But, you know, go home and go to sleep. So that tomorrow, you know, your your batteries are you know they're they're re, re, you know refilled and and you're ready to go. You're ready to serve the Lord again. See. We we all need to do that rest. But but here again, why? Every day, every day we take up our cross. Every day we deny ourselves. And take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. Not just once a week. Not just whenever we feel like it. Every day. That's how important the death of Jesus Christ was for us. That's how important the resurrection is supposed to be for us. If these things don't matter, then we're dead. Lukewarm. Paul said in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's a daily thing. To come to the Lord and present ourselves every day. To serve the Lord and worship the Lord by our service. Compromising what He did for us is an insult which causes Jesus to experience a repulsing nausea down deep, right? Well, I'm not, it's not what I said, it's what Revelation 3.16 says. Jesus says, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, which means I will vomit you out of my mouth. Something that causes nausea in Jesus is this attitude and lifestyle of lukewarmness. John Stodd, who is a very popular Christian writer, uh, passed away very recently. He wrote this. I want you to look at what he said. He said, Christ's forceful expression, speaking of this verse, Christ's forceful expression is one of disgust. He will utterly repudiate those whose attachment to him is purely nominal and superficial. That's that's a pretty heavy way of interpreting what Jesus said when he said, you know, if you're just lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. That's not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty thought. And neither is it a good action for Jesus to have to say it has to be done. And it is possible then, with all that we've looked at tonight, it is possible then for one to be religious, listen to me please, It is possible then for one to be religious and at the same time to be repulsive to Christ. Did you get that? It is possible then for one to be religious and at the same time to be repulsive to Christ. All such he must reject. They call themselves a church. As a matter of fact, they're the church of the Laodiceans. The church that belongs to them. And then in verse 17. It says, because you say I am rich. I become wealthy and have need of nothing. Same attitude as the whole city. And do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. The lukewarm make false professions. The lukewarm will make false professions. The church felt that it was rich, that it was prosperous, and had need of nothing. As stated before, the city was extremely wealthy, and practically everyone but the slaves shared in the wealth. We can tell by the very charge of Jesus Christ against the church that the believers were financially wealthy. What happened to the church is what so often happens among believers. They equated wealth and prosperity with spirituality. That is a dangerous thing. They equated wealth and prosperity with spirituality. They felt that they had been especially blessed by God because they had been blessed with material possessions and wealth. So, this is what they became. The church became self-sufficient. We could handle it ourselves. The church became independent. It wasn't like the other churches anymore in their region. They didn't need them and the other churches probably needed them, but they were were going to be independent of everybody else. They were self-centered. Just by the statement of Jesus, I am rich. And have need of nothing. They became self centered. They were prideful. Those are prideful statements that Jesus brings up. They were conceited. And they were boastful. You could say those last three kind of wrap all of, uh, into one thing, but they're, they're different attitudes of the, same, uh, of the same characteristic. Jesus needed to be blunt. To open the eyes to their true spiritual condition. These self-secure, complacent Christians needed to have their eyes opened. So that they would see that they were wretched and that they were miserable and they were poor and they were blind and they were naked. They were not wholeheartedly committed to Jesus. Morally and spiritually, they were naked, blind beggars. They were naked beggars because they had nothing with which to purchase their forgiveness or entry into the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying that we purchase our way into heaven. But when we get into verse eighteen next week, we're gonna see what I mean by that. Because what does Jesus tell them? Buy something from me. And we'll talk about that next time. But you see, they were naked, they didn't have what they needed. They thought they were rich, but they had nothing spiritually. They are blind because they had no idea of their true poverty or spiritual condition. And they had squandered what riches had truly been given to them. I read a story today about a black preacher who once said that a good many of his congregation would be lost because they were too generous. He saw that the people looked rather surprised when he said that to them. So he said, perhaps you think I made a mistake and that I ought to have said you will be lost because you are not generous enough. That is not so. I meant just what I said. And here's his explanation. Here's his explanation. He said, you give away too many sermons. You hear them as it were. For other people. There are a good many people who listen for those behind them. (laughs) They say the message is very good for neighbor so and so. And they pass it over their shoulders. Till it gets clear out the door. Many a a good many of his congregation would be lost because they were too generous. Generous they gave away too many sermons and they kept none of them for themselves. Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 16, he says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion." 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. It says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Now all you have to do is change to 2 Corinthians, same, verses, same chapter and verse. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves And comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. All of these things Laodicean church members did. They measured themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves. We are rich and have need of nothing. Galatians 6 verse 3, Paul says, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Lastly, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Well, we'll end here because of time as well as I don't have any more notes. But we'll end here with this thought. Of course, you've already read all of the rest of the chapter. So the question is, is there any hope? There is, because Jesus gives a warning and a rebuke, but he also gives an admonition. And then he says something also, and I want to close with this, and that is what he says in verse 19, because verse 18 is really going to be the focus of our attention next time. When he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. But I want you just to look at verse 19. Because there in verse 19 he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Just as the prophets had said to, uh, as the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the other prophets had said to, a, to a, a rebellious Israel. You're going to be judged But you need to repent. Repent and return to God. And Jesus is saying to them, as many as I love, I chasten. This is a love story as well. He loves this church. But he has said to them, you need to be zealous and repent. And we're going to see how zealousness is the contrast to lukewarmness. To be zealous. To have a zeal for the Lord. To have a zeal for the Word of God. To have a zeal for Christ and for His, for His service. That's where we need to find ourselves. So we'll close this chapter next time and then we'll get right into chapter 4 the following week. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and we bless you.